Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today we have two very special guests who will talk about some of the origins of the human race and where are we going if one day we can control the aging process. Our first special guest is Dr. William Calvin, and he's the author of a new book called A Brief History of the Mind. That's right, we're now going to go back millions of years into the past, into the past when we weren't that intelligent, and then the question is, what was the spark? What was the spark that set us on this long journey to master the environment, to be able to manipulate objects around us, in other words, to become intelligent? Why did we separate from the rest of the apes? Some people think that perhaps the pivotal moment took place perhaps six million years ago in Africa. But what was it? Was it climate change? Was it somehow a mutation in our genes? What was it that set us off into this journey to become masters of our fate? And then our second special guest is Dr. Jay Olshansky, and he's going to talk to us about the aging process. No, we're not going to talk about Hocus Pocus and all the kinds of Madison Avenue advertisement you get when you walk into the drugstore stating that you can reverse all the wrinkles on your face. No, we're talking about the science, the genetics behind the aging process. Did you know that we now know what aging basically is? We didn't really know what aging even was 10, 15 years ago. But now we're converging on the idea that the aging process is basically the process of the accumulation of errors. Errors at the genetic level. Errors at the cellular level. And over time, as these errors build up, cells become sluggish. They don't work as well as they used to. They begin to sag. They begin to malfunction. In other words, we get old. And then the question is, do we really have to die? One day, with genetic engineering, it may be possible to stop, and who knows, maybe even reverse the aging process. And these are some of the things we'll talk to our special guest about. So once again, our first special guest will talk about the origin of the human race. William Calvin is the author of the book, A Brief History of the Mind. And then our second special guest is Dr. Jay Olshansky, who will talk to about not the hocus-pocus and all the superstition, but the real science, the science behind understanding the aging process and what can be done, who knows, sometimes in the future, when we have an understanding of the genetics behind the aging process and we're able to not only to slow it down, but perhaps even reverse the aging process. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. He's Professor William Calvin. He's professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, and he's the author of a book called A Brief History of the Mind. He's an expert in the origins of humanity, and so we'll go back 
will go back six to seven million years when we first separated from the apes and begin the process of trying to figure out how is it that humans became humans? How is it that humans accumulated a large brain? How did we gain the capability of being able to split the atom and explore the universe? So once again, our special guest today is Professor William Calvin of the University of Washington in Seattle. And the topic of today is A Brief History of the Mind. The first question for you is, how did you, as a scientist, first get interested in science? Well, that's interesting, because I wasn't a particularly good student in high school, and I certainly didn't get interested in science then, though I took courses. I just didn't have very good teachers. Uh, but when I got to college, uh, all of a sudden, you know, I had good professors, and it was more interesting than anything else I'd ever done. I basically gave up all of my previous interests in photography and journalism and even even sports. I'd been the sports editor of my school paper in high school. Uh, but I, I really gave all those things up because science was so interesting. And that, that, that's the, uh, a, an answer I suspect that applies to a lot of people. Okay, but why anthropology? Why brain studies? Why the study of primates? How did you get steered into that direction? Uh, via humans, actually. Uh, that, that's a, a late interest. Uh, and it really occurred because I had a, a colleague in the neurosurgery department who was working on the physiology of language cortex. And uh, because I was assisting him in some other projects, uh, I learned quite a lot about uh, his subject. And it led me into the question of uh, how did the brain get reorganized? Uh, not, not, it's not really a question of enlargement. It's a question of, you know, the, the whole tip of the temporal lobe is now doing something different than it does in monkeys. And the whole question of how did that evolve in human evolution uh, was what led me into the rest of human evolution. Okay. Well, let's get into the uh, meat of your book, A Brief History of the Mind. Uh, your book is chronological, and you start going back six, seven, eight million years ago when certain conditions in Africa were met, and we, our ancestors, separated from the apes, uh, in particular a chimpanzee-like creature. Could you elaborate what happened? Why did we separate to begin the long journey to become Homo sapiens? Well, you have to start with what the apes are capable of. The uh, <clears throat> chimpanzees are the ones that we know the most about. Uh, and they can exist in savanna, uh, woodland-type uh, settings. Uh, most of them live in forests, but uh, in, say, Senegal, uh, you find them in more open territory. And that's what I imagine our ancestors as, as being in, because a lot more woodland and savannah was beginning to develop in Africa about seven million years ago. I mean, that's when animals like the Cape buffalo, you know, first appear on the scene. Uh, and all of the um, all the antelope in Africa that uh, were evolving in this period. So there was a lot of grass around and a lot of meat on the hoof. And eventually our ancestors, you know, learned how to you know, hunt reliably, but the the transition 
to that is what's fascinated anthropologists for a long time. Now, speaking about that, some people conjecture that it was the upright posture. Uh, that was the first glimmers of our separation from yeah. the apes. Could you elaborate? Uh, well, the, the upright posture and sort of the rearrangement of where the spinal cord comes into the, to the head uh, is first seen back around the 6-7 million your territory. And that's some of the best evidence for upright posture, uh, sort of a rebalancing of the head on top of the, the spinal cord. Uh, <clears throat> that presumably is because our ancestors were getting out of the trees and out uh, into a bipedal kind of setting, and what was that was running in our present uh, notion of, of, of running long distances uh, is, is probably not the answer. Their, their feet just were not rearranged until much later. Uh, but it's, it's thought that uh, what they were doing is they were still nesting at night in trees, the way the chimpanzees do, and certainly running up a tree for protection if they got chased. Uh, but they were coming down out of it and making a living in uh, the woodland and, and savanna kinds of settings. Uh, mostly woodland, because you got to keep the trees close. Uh, but you need upright posture if you're going to scavenge and run away, you know, with uh, uh, you know, at least a piece of meat and have the other animals stay there and consume the carcass rather than chase you. Uh, so upright posture for both carrying, you know, away stuff uh, and for also keeping your head up above the grass so you can see that you're not walking into a, <laughs> another lion coming. Uh, both of those things have are part of the rationale for why you get upright posture. Now, if we begin to leave the forest uh, and move into the open grasslands and assume an upright posture, what about our thumb? Uh, thumbs, we know, uh, primates use thumbs for, among other things, swinging in trees. So uh, was the thumb, therefore, maladapted for the forest, but very adapted for a new purpose in the savannas? Well, uh, for swaying from trees, you actually want a small thumb that will stay out of the way. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's really much more a matter of hanging by the other four fingers. Uh, the kind of power grip that you associate with the thumb uh, is not a big part of this. Um, it is a big part of holding onto rocks and bashing them together to get a sharp edge. Uh, but I, I really, you know, the, the evidence really isn't in on, on the thumb yet, the way it is on upright posture. Okay, so now we're in the grasslands. Um, it is now, again, six, seven million years ago. Well, but things well, begin to change. Yeah. Uh, why? Well... First of all, you have a, a long period where nothing much seems to happen. <laughs> that is to say, the climate is producing more and more woodland because basically instead of having a carpet of trees in Africa, you're going to a lot of patches in between groups of trees. And woodland tends to appear around the edges of the forest as a transition. And so because everything was becoming patchy. Woodland was really the growth environment. If you could make a living in woodland, there was more of it being produced every year. So uh, that's 
one of the things that's going on all through this period. Actually getting out on Savannah with its implication of a tree every mile or so uh, is probably something that occurs around 1.8 million with Homo erectus. Uh, it's, it's just not that clear they were in Savannah settings until then. Okay, so what gradually led to the enlargement of the brain? The brain did not suddenly appear in, in full-fledged form. It grew very slowly, but why? Well, no one knows is the short answer. Uh, everybody assumes it has something to do with li- living a more complicated life and needing more brain to do it. Uh, but, you know, if you do comparative studies with other animals, Things like that, you just don't find good examples uh, the way that you'd like to. It's true that, say, the ravens amongst the birds uh, tend to have somewhat bigger brains, uh, but it's it's not a consistent sort of thing. Grazing animals have smaller brains per unit body weight than do their predators, but it, it's all sort of small stuff like this. It's, it's a thing about a, a threefold enlargement in only two and a half million years, uh, which produces about four times more neocortex. So that that's the question. That's the one I'm saying no way really has a satisfactory answer. Well, if uh, for people who saw the movie 2001, there's that famous scene where a chimpanzee-like creature grabs a piece of bone lifts it up, smashes other bones, and right. then the bone becomes a space station in outer right, right. space. Very famous scene. Is there any scientific basis to that, that it was tool-making that uh, required a larger brain because we were maladapted for mm-hmm. life in the savannas? Well, that, again, is a common assumption. And the, the problem with it uh, is that Archaeologists have been hard at work on the tool-making record in the last two and a half million years. And it's not a, a, a record of study progress. For example, you get the first tools back at about 2.7 million, and they're basically rocks with sharp edges um, because you know there's some rocks that are better shipping away like this than others. Uh, they are somewhat economical, and they, they will hit a rock instead of just once to get a sharp edge, they may hit it a second time to you know, get two before they go off and use it. But the, the initial tool-making styles, so-called Dolwan styles, uh, are not sort of like a you know, set of silverware with very distinct styles. Uh, they're just characterized by a sharp edge and a good, a good grip. And, you know, there's lots of shapes that will satisfy. That went on for a million years with no particular improvements. At the same time, the brain was enlarging quite steadily during that time. Okay, well, there is a theory that says that, in some sense, man did not make tools. Tools made man in the sense that in order to survive, increase your evolutionary survival value in the forest, I mean, in the savannas, you had to create tools, and that forced large brains to coordinate those tools, or else you didn't survive to perpetuate your yeah. species into the next generation. And, and, uh, what are your thoughts? What, what this meta-analysis that I was just you know, quoting to you says is not a very good explanation. Uh, that is to say, yes, you may have had to get over a threshold, 
but why does brain size keep increasing when tool making doesn't change its complexity for a million years and does this twice in our evolutionary history? I mean, it's, it's just a, a story that is not one of constant improvement. And what is your theory? you have any speculations as to what you think caused the large brain to slowly get larger and larger uh, over, over millions and millions of years? Well, I, I, I don't have a theory that, you know, is widely accepted. I mean, nobody's, you know, th- this is all still quite an unsettled question. Uh, I, I'm driven to look at it as, as the brain size increase secondary to something else in development uh, that just incidentally produces a larger brain. For example, if you've got to reorganize the brain, you know, particularly that temporal lobe that I mentioned before, uh, it may be that the easiest way to do that is to do the reorganization in a slightly larger brain. I mean, it's sort of like if you're going to rearrange your, you know, all the, the rooms in your house or something, it's nice to have a little surge space someplace to store stuff in while you're moving. Uh, and so the, the reorganization just worked better in brains that were a little bit larger. Okay. So, so that within a given generation, those that had somewhat larger brains would be the ones that were easily grew up with a reorganized brain. Okay, now... So in this view, the, the size isn't the main thing. It's the reorganization. And it might be that we could even downsize to chimpanzee-sized brains as long as we kept the reorganization, and we might still be a smart. Okay, now let's talk about 100,000 and 60,000 years ago. Most textbooks say that about 100,000 years ago, plus or minus, modern humans, that is, humans that look like us, uh, are erect um, spinal cord, our structure. They say that if you give them a shave, a three-piece suit, and put them on Wall Street, they would look pretty much indistinguishable from all the other barbarians on Wall Street. However, you take a slightly different spin on this, and you say that, well, where is the evidence that they were modern and could cite poetry and create all sorts of advanced tools? Uh, what are your thoughts about what happened now 60 to 100,000 years ago? Well, uh, the context, uh, it's, we're, we're homo sapiens, you know, our species, by about, it's now 200,000 years ago. Uh, that is to say, uh, in, in Africa, you're, you're seeing evidence of our species, uh, you know, back around 200,000 years ago. Now, their behavior hadn't changed very much. It's very unclear what the transition, you know, was about. Uh, but in terms of any sort of study, you know, change in complexity of life, uh, it's pretty slow going until about 100,000 and then, by about 50,000, and all these are plus or minus 20,000, uh, <clears> by about 50,000, you're starting to see widespread evidence of creativity. That is to say, they're making lots of new things. And that's certainly not the case you know, earlier. Uh, you're beginning to get evidence of, of substantial long-distance trading and, you know, trading involves doing some planning. Uh, that is to say that you're going to have a market for your goods when you get there and you've got something desirable to bring home. 
the, I mean, the evidence for higher intellectual function having taken a substantial, you know, advance uh, is all over, you know, the archaeological record. And that's when a lot of people assume that, that something like syntax uh, must have come in, too, as they, it's part of higher intellectual function that uh, enables you to not just have, you know, two words put together to make a, a simple sentence, but being able to make one of these long, involved sentences. So you would put language and the ability to manipulate and join and splice together more than just one thought into one sentence as sort of the core of what caused the Big Bang roughly 60,000 years ago? Yeah. Uh, basically, I, I, I think that you have this uh, Big Bang is, is sort of a popular term for what John Pfeiffer called the creative explosion, which is a, a much more descriptive term of, of what it's about. You know, it's about creativity and tool-making, creative planning, other things. Uh, it shows up best, of course, in the art, uh, where you even get perspective, you know, fairly early on in cave painting. It goes back 37,000 years at least. Uh, so just within the middle of that, you know, period, 70,000 down to 35,000, there's just all sorts of evidence of something really new is happening. They're leading much more complex lives, and it, 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 it has evidence in it of, of much more sophisticated thought processes. Okay, now going... Now, whether that's driven by syntax or whether... Syntax is another one of those things that you get through secondary use of mental machinery for something else. You know, that's open. Okay. Now, you also mentioned in your book Ice Ages. Ice Ages is one of the principal drivers of human evolution. Uh, could you elaborate on that idea? Well, in general, climate change is one of the things that speeds up evolution. Uh, it just provides a more unsettled uh, environment that where new niches can develop, that uh, variants on species can fill and become a new species. Uh, so human evolution is going to be another example of that, but uh, all you can really say is that it speeds up what you know might be there to happen otherwise. Uh, you know, personally, I think that the, the main thing going is not a a slow study change in the environment, uh, but that there were pretty rapid things going on. I mean, ice ages you know, take 100,000 years, and uh, that's pretty slow. I mean, nobody knows it's happening. Uh, but sprinkled in amongst all that are a lot of, of brief, quick changes in the environment that everybody would have noticed. For example, they would cause widespread drought and lots of fire. Uh, and after the fire comes a lot of grass growing in places where it was brush or forest before. And the grazing animals have a boom time. They start doubling and tripling their population, take advantage of all the new grass that came after one of these drought-induced fires. So if, if our ancestors were hunting by that time, they were predators on grazing animals. Uh, they, again, had a big opportunity. It was a big boom time after one of these big downsizings due to drought. 
Okay. Why? Why? I tend to think is that the the natural selection that was operating here was not on having the right stuff to survive downsizing. You know, I think it was so quick that whether you lived or died was mostly a matter of luck rather than having the right stuff. Uh, but in the aftermath of that, where you get this big boom time in grass, uh, I think that um, it would very much have mattered whether you were a good enough hunter to make a study living off of it and therefore could venture out of woodlands and grasslands much more permanently. But now, certainly in the sort of the 50-year aftermath, one of these abrupt uh, cooling and drought and windy and dusty climate changes. Okay, now also your book mentions the Neanderthal. Uh, we coexisted with the Neanderthal in Europe for thousands of years. So where does the Neanderthal fit into this? Uh, Neanderthal is sort of a specialized um, European, mostly, although it spreads into Asia periodically, uh, European species that's adapted for colder climate, though they did not live in northern Europe, that was apparently too much for them. Uh, but they were clearly hunters. Uh, but it doesn't, the way it appears is that they had a method of hunting that caused them a lot of injuries. I mean, they're, as they Neanderthal bones often have healed fractures. Uh, and so the thought is, is that they probably didn't have the most sophisticated hunting techniques that allow you to stand at a distance throw something. They were getting up close with their spears and such and taking a lot of injuries as a result. Uh, there's not particularly good evidence for uh, them having any sophisticated language. They probably, like our ancestors about 200,000 years ago, had simple uh, language like two-year-olds, as say they had words. They could put them together into making short sentences, but they couldn't engage in the, the complicated thought that goes along with long sentences. Now, the Neanderthals, I take it, did not have this big bang that we had that allowed right. us to create complex sentences, manipulate more than just one thought at a time, and plan and strategize, right? Right. They, they clearly were capable of making more sophisticated tools as to say, when, when our Homo sapiens ancestors moved into the neighborhood, uh, the Neanderthals picked up on their techniques uh, and began producing you know, similar kinds of things. So uh, they may not have been as inventive, or if they were inventive, they kept dying out all the time. Um, but um, certainly they didn't have an intellectual thing back, perhaps you know, because the, the climate really wiped them out. They were a European species, and Europe in that period when they died out uh, was getting colder and colder. The glaciers were taking over more and more of their territory. And a lot of species got sort of pushed south into the Mediterranean and went extinct. And it may be that Neanderthals are another example of that.
And that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, our special guest has been Dr. William Calvin, author of the book, A Brief History of the Mind. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. And be sure to dial into my website. It's www.mkaku.org www.mkaku.org and you can find out all about my latest book Physics of the Impossible and the commentaries that I do for the Science Channel. So stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration as we talk about the aging process and whether or not one day we might be able to reverse it. Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we talked about the evolution of the mind. This is, of course, the 150th anniversary of the publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, and the mind itself is a byproduct of evolution, says William Calvin in his book, A Brief History of the Mind. Well, in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about whether or not we can cheat evolution and perhaps extend the human lifespan. Some people think that the human lifespan is programmed into us genetically, If so, then perhaps we can tinker with it and use genetic engineering to lengthen the human lifespan. So in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Dr. Jay Olshansky, one of the nation's leading experts on genetic engineering and the aging process. And he is the co-author of a book called The Quest for Immortality. So once again, in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about the aging process, what we know about it, and what we might one day be able to do about it. Now I'd like to bring on our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor S.J. Olshansky. He's a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he's also research institute at the Center on Aging at the University of Chicago. Well, if you've been to the drugstore, you've probably been hit with all these advertising saying that you can retard the aging process, even roll back the hands of time, live longer, they say. But what about the truth? The truth about human growth hormone, 
antioxidants, massive doses of vitamins and minerals and herbs and supplements. What about the hardcore truth and scientific verification of these claims? And also, what about genetics? We seem to be teasing apart many of the genes that influence the aging process. So once again, we're going to bring on our special guest today, Professor Jay Olshansky, and he's the co-author of a book called The Quest for Immortality. So that's the subject of today's discussion, immortality. I understand that today you and other prominent scientists have issued a, a policy statement, a recommendation of sorts that could have serious uh, and beneficial economic benefits. Uh, could you elaborate? Yes, uh, this is uh, based on an article we published in The Scientist back in March of uh, this year uh, with Rich Miller from the University of Michigan, uh, Dan Perry from the Alliance for Aging Research, and Bob Butler from the International Longevity Center in New York. And we basically uh, suggested that the time has arrived for uh, societies, uh, not just the United States, but really all nations, to begin investing in an effort to slow the biological process of aging in people. Uh, and the logic and the rationale is fairly straightforward. Uh, basically, what we're suggesting is, is that a, even a small uh, deceleration or slowdown in the rate of biological aging uh, of just a few years would actually yield huge economic and health benefits. Um, I mean, think of it this way. The way the NIH is currently set up is essentially to d deal with one disease at a time independent of all others. But if you can find a way to slow down the biological process of aging, you would essentially postpone everything that is negative associated with growing older into later and later ages. It would be, even, it would be as if you, you achieved a major discovery for every major fatal and non-fatal disease if you could find a way to slow aging. So we're calling on Congress to begin investing in a concerted effort to slow the biological process of aging in, in people. Yes, in fact, the social benefits could be astronomical, especially as you look at the baby boomers that are hitting 60 and will eventually uh, increase medical costs uh, tremendously in this country. Yes, I mean, the prevalence of, uh, of conditions of frailty and disability will rise dramatically in the coming decades with the aging of the baby boom cohort. Uh, so slowing that process even a little bit would actually uh, enable people to be uh, healthier longer, uh, contribute uh, to the economy longer. They would just uh, just everything positive uh, associated with um, with uh, with aging. There are positive things associated with aging would uh, be extended. Uh, so it would be it would be uh, an, an extraordinarily important. Uh, event for national economies, for public health. Uh, I, it, really, the time has arrived, I think. And not only has the time arrived, but the science is approaching the level at which I think we're beginning to gain enough understanding that we think we can do this in humans. We know we can do it in other animals. Um, we think we can do this in humans. Okay, now let's get back to Earth and uh, talk about hokum, snake oil, and real science. Uh, if you visit the drugstore, you realize that there are whole shelves full of herbs and remedies and vitamins, making all sorts of promises about retarding the aging process, reversing the years. So let's now talk about the science, that is, what is known experimentally. Let's start with the Internet, where we have lots of advertisements for human growth hormone. 
Now, in some sense, are the people of America being used as guinea pigs for this gigantic experiment on human growth hormone, or what are your thoughts? Well, uh, actually, uh, people are using themselves as guinea pigs. It's absolutely remarkable that, uh, you know, you can go on the Internet and find every conceivable nutritional supplement and hormone, including growth hormone, uh, with people with no expertise in the field claiming that it can slow, stop, or reverse the biological process of aging. And people believe this. They spend enormous sums of money. They order this stuff over the Internet. They inject themselves with it or take these pills. And there isn't a shred of evidence that it'll make you live any longer. There actually is some evidence, some suggestive evidence, that some of these substances, including growth hormone, have the potential to actually shorten your life. Uh, so it's remarkable that people are conducting a biological experiment on themselves. It doesn't mean that there isn't value necessarily some nutritional supplements, particularly for people who are deficient in certain vitamins and minerals. Uh, there's no question that there is a benefit for those individuals. But if your diet is so bad that you're deficient in some major uh, vitamin or mineral or, uh, you know, or, or something, um, that uh, these, uh, these vitamin supplements aren't going to uh, make up the difference. It simply isn't going to work. And there's no evidence that it actually extends life. And what about the side effects of human growth hormones? Some people think maybe cancer or other kinds of diseases associated with accelerating metabolism. Uh, it's like a sports car. If you were to accelerate a sports car, you'd throw off a few gears here, here and there. And that, of course, means cancer, because cancer, in some sense, is genetic errors. Uh, but what are your thoughts about side effects of human growth hormone? Well, um, first of all, uh, it has been demonstrated that there are some benefits, believe it or not, uh, associated with growth hormone including increased muscle mass and uh, reduction in the rate of bone loss and improved skin elasticity. So you can't deny the fact that there have been benefits associated with it. But accompanying those benefits have been uh, risks, including carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, increased risk of diabetes. There is suggestive evidence that it might increase the risk of cancer. The fact is, is that it hasn't been properly studied yet using clinical trials in humans. Uh, and so before those clinical trials are in, before we know what the results are, it's really premature to be using these kinds of substances. And again, once again, with the case of growth hormone, there isn't any evidence that it extends life. Okay, now moving on, when you go to the drugstore, you see these advertisements for megavitamins. Uh, some claim that it retards uh, the oxidation process. Other people cite certain studies which show that if you ingest certain diets, diets are rich in vitamins, it seems to be good for you. But what about the pure, the pure form of vitamins that you buy in the drugstore? Well, um, well, once again, um, you know, the, the nutritional supplement uh, industry is really working hard to convince us that aging is somehow caused by... Uh, uh, either the loss of some hormone or the lack of nutritional supplements of one kind or another, and they're perfectly willing to sell you uh, everything that that, uh, that that they can to try to convince you that you can somehow influence this process. Uh, and it's based in part on a uh, on, on on science, uh, where it's suggested that uh, that aging is influenced by oxidation, uh, and this oxidation process can be. Uh, uh, slowed down in theory with the ingestion of uh, certain nutritional supplements that have antioxidative effects. Um, but there isn't any empirical evidence that demonstrates that these substances actually extend duration of life. Uh, so once again, it's the same scenario 
uh, where people are selling something with exaggerated claims, uh, with a profit motive uh, in mind, and uh, people are buying it up like crazy. And what about herbs? Some people say that maybe pure vitamins that are refined by the chemical companies may not uh, simulate uh, vitamins in the natural forms. So what about taking herbal medicines? What is known or not known about herbs? Now, honestly, I don't, I don't know that much about her, uh, herbs and herbal medicines um, to comment uh, on that. But what I can tell you is, is, that, is that there's plenty of evidence that eating more fruits and vegetables and uh, can certainly in, uh, l- lower your risk of a wide variety of diseases and disorders. Uh, and, of course, those in the supplement is- industry are suggesting that contained within those fruits and vegetables are certain substances that they can concentrate in a pill and give to you in a larger form, you know, under the assumption that more is better. Well, there is where the evidence is lacking. There, the evidence is there that eating more fruits and vegetables is good for you, the evidence is lacking that the nutritional supplements containing the vitamins that they think are causing the beneficial effect, uh, the evidence there is lacking that that will have any significant effect. Okay, now moving on, let's talk about something that actually does work. Uh, I think all scientists would say unanimously that there is one and only one proven way, in the animal kingdom anyway, of actually increasing the lifespan of animals. We don't know whether it works for humans yet. But let's talk about caloric restriction. First of all, what is it, and uh, what tests have been done? Well, this, you're right. This is the uh, one intervention that's been demonstrated repeatedly to extend duration of life on a wide variety of species. Uh, it's basically reducing your caloric intake. It can, you know, vary. The percentage can vary from anywhere from 10 to 30 percent below maintenance levels. Um, so it would depend on what your current uh, height and weight is, but you know, if your normal caloric intake is uh, 2,000 calories to maintain your weight, you might be reducing it down to 15, for example, 1,500 uh, calories. Um, and, the, and no one exactly knows uh, why it works or how it works, the underlying mechanism, but there is consistent research su- suggesting that it extends duration of life. Now, the question is, how does it do so? Does it extend duration of life by slowing the biological process of aging. Some people believe that to be the case. Others suggest that it actually extends duration of life by reducing the risk of a wide variety of diseases and disorders, which is not the same as slowing the biological process of aging. Um, Remember, if you reduce the risk of uh, heart disease, cancer, and stroke, however you do that through exercise or diet, the aging process marches on. It's uninfluenced by that. Um, but if indeed you're slowing down the biological process of aging, then everything negative associated with it is dragged to later ages. It's postponed to later ages. And that would actually be a wonderful thing if caloric restriction was the mechanism that actually uh, worked. Now, don't expect, by the way, that people are going to be living longer by reducing, dramatically reducing their caloric intake. What the scientists are looking for is the underlying mechanism to find a way to mimic that process without actually reducing your caloric intake. It should be obvious, by the way, that in the United States and elsewhere, we're doing the exact opposite. We are increasing our caloric intake. We are growing more obese at a more rapid pace um, than we ever have in the past. So this research is particularly important and is interesting for a wide variety of reasons. Okay, now caloric restriction works on yeast cells, uh, spiders, insects, uh, mice, And now, for the first time, we're getting the first preliminary 
evidence uh, from primate studies done in Bethesda, Maryland. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those experiments, because primates, of course, are closer to us, and uh, perhaps it may work on organisms as complex as us. But what are your thoughts? Well, my guess is it probably will. I mean, the work of Richard Weinrich from uh, Wisconsin and other researchers uh, at NIH Bethesda uh, have, I think, demonstrated quite convincingly that reducing caloric intake can lower the risk of disease. Probably it will extend duration of life. We have to wait for these animals to live long enough to determine whether or not uh, that's going to be one of the consequences. But there's... There are a couple of problems here. In the, some of the earlier studies, you need to remember that the control animals that were used in the caloric restriction studies were fed ad libitum, uh, meaning they had as much food as they wanted, which is sort of like us. Uh, and so whenever you reduce your caloric intake uh, relative to eating as much as you want, what you are demonstrating is more the uh, detrimental effect of a gluttonous lifestyle rather than the longevity-enhancing effect of caloric restriction. So you have to be careful on, on how you interpret that. Now, in more recent studies, the control animals are not fed ad libitum. They are, are fed really more of a maintenance diet. Um, and you're not seeing quite the large uh, differences in uh, duration of life in these two populations when you do it that way. Nevertheless, you do see reductions in the risk of uh, a wide variety of diseases and disorders, and we would all be better off if we reduced our caloric intake. Whether it would work in humans at the level that we see in the, these other species, I think is highly questionable. And there's a real concern when, uh, for example, you extend the duration of life of a fruit fly or, uh, or a roundworm nematode by three, four, or five-fold. Real, it's real tempting for researchers to then multiply the human life expectancy by three, four, or five and suggest that the same effect if it occurred in humans would make us live hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, my guess is we wouldn't see anywhere near that kind of uh, magnitude, uh, increase in magnitude and duration of life in humans. But if we could, you know, live healthier longer for just, you know, an extra five or ten years, that would be huge. Okay, now I understand that the animals that have been studied uh, seem to be a little bit lethargic uh, because they have such a restricted diet. They have less cancerous tumors, uh, less incidences of diseases associated with the aging process, but they also seem to lack an interest in the sex drive. That is, all the things that uh, make uh, life worth living, joie de vivre, uh, these animals seem to be pretty lethargic. Uh, is that true? Yeah, so I understand that there is a appears to be a price uh, to pay. There appears to be uh, lower fecundity, um, less interest in uh, sex, and I think a difficult problem with controlling body temperature. Uh, these animals uh, are cold, in fact, uh, feel cold. And in fact, in the case of humans who are conducting this experiment on themselves, they're essentially reporting the same thing. Um, so there is a price, at least for now, to be paid by adopting this calorically restricted uh, diet, which is why, as I suggested earlier, re reducing your caloric intake to these kinds of levels probably isn't the way it's going to work in humans. The way it's probably going to work in humans is that scientists will try to find some sort of mimetic, something that will uh, fool the body into believing that it's cal calorically restricted to achieve the same effect uh, without actually reducing significantly reducing your caloric intake like that. And that's probably... Uh, the way it will work, and, and that's—it's extremely valuable and interesting uh, research that needs to be 
aggressively uh, pursued because there's such great potential there. Okay, now let's leave the animal kingdom and talk, and talk strictly about humans. Uh, in your book, you mentioned the fact that the uh, life expectancy for Americans at the beginning of the 20th century was not very long at all, less than 50 years of age. And yet there's been an increase uh, into the 70s uh, since then. Some people think it's sanitation. Other people think it's antibiotics and vaccines. But what are your thoughts about looking at the long-term, the long-term life expectancy of humans going back to ancient days, uh, through the Middle Ages, uh, to the turn of the century, to present-day times? Well, going back to, to ancient times, uh, there's evidence to suggest that life expectancy, for example, during the time of the uh, ancient Egyptians, was probably somewhere in the 20s. Nobody knows exactly where it was, but it's likely to have been in the 20s. Uh, we've, we achieved a very small incremental increase over uh, the millennia to the beginning of the 20th, uh, uh, the beginning of the, the 19th and 20th centuries, when life expectancy rose up to about uh, between 45 and 50, uh, in the United States anyway. Um, and then you saw this quantum leap in life expectancy during the 20th century from uh, you know, 50 to close to 80. And that was largely attributable to dramatic reductions in early age mortality, infant, child, and maternal mortality, principally as a result of uh, sanitation, uh, public health, refrigeration, uh, foods, and so forth. It's, you know, the introduction of antibiotics uh, occurred after most of the declines in the death rate uh, occurred at younger ages and contributed relatively uh, a small amount to the rise in life expectancy in the 20th century. Now, in the latter part of the 20th century, there have been notable reductions in death rates at middle and older ages, even from heart disease, from some forms of cancer. Um, and so you, you see you know, two forces contributing during the 20th century. The early age mortality declines at the beginning, and the later age mortality declines at the end, uh, which explains, by the way, why the more recent increases in life expectancy have been smaller than the ones that occurred at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. When you save children from dying, you add very rapidly to life expectancy. When you save middle-aged and older people from dying uh, from uh, fatal diseases, chronic fatal diseases, you add rel a relatively smaller amount. Now, it turns out that Japanese women have some of the longest life expectancies on the planet Earth. Uh, it's almost approaching 90. So we're talking about 50% uh, of Japanese women uh, essentially getting into their late 80s and into their 90s. Some people say it's diet, a fish diet that's low in fat. But uh, what are your thoughts about the demographics of different societies? Well, first of all, for, the, for Japanese women, it's just above 85 might it be approaching 86. And, mm -hmm. and you have to realize that, that um, there's a huge difference between 85 and 90. It's not the same as between 50 and 55. Uh, and the reason is fairly straight, straightforward. Um, you know, to raise life expectancy up when you're at these very high levels is extremely difficult because you're, you know, you're pushing up against uh, the basic biological process of aging itself. There's no question that subgroups of the population, such as those in Okinawa, Japan, for example, have, have much higher life expectancies. The actual force involved is, is not yet understood. 
Um, it's not like we can, here in the U.S., adopt the lifestyle of the Japanese. I know some people have suggested this, including some friends of mine um, who study the, the Okinawa diet, uh, suggested that you can somehow get Americans to live as long as the Okinawans by, have, by adopting this particular lifestyle. And there's no evidence to suggest that that would be the case, unless, of course, we were all Japanese here in the United States, and that isn't the case. Um, you know, there are genetic factors that are influencing uh, uh, the risk of death and, and, uh, and duration of life, and those are things that we simply cannot control, um, uh, at least not yet, anyway. Uh, but there's no question that subgroups of the population do experience greater longevity than other subgroups, and that is a fascinating area to study, by the way, because it would appear as though there are genes that exist within the human genome that influence duration of life, and they may be more highly concentrated in some subgroups relative to others. Okay, now let's talk about genes, because that's, of course, where most of the breakthroughs are being made in the last few years. Again, there's no fountain of youth. Uh, no, in, no one in the genetics area is claiming to have solved the aging process, but there's been lots of very interesting studies. Uh, first of all, there's something called progeria, a genetic disease that's been intensely studied in which children children die of old age. Uh, they look like plucked chickens, and they die of heart attacks as teenagers. Uh, could you elaborate on that very strange disease? Well, it appears on this progeria appears on the surface anyway to be a phenomenon of accelerated aging, uh, but there's evidence to suggest it is not. There are lots of things that don't occur. Uh, in these uh, children that occur in the aging phenotype of, of uh, individuals who a actually do make it out to, to older ages. So I would be cautious about, uh, about thinking of progeria as accelerated uh, aging. Um, it is certainly interesting to study these individuals, and you have to realize that it's always easy to do something to yourself that will accelerate aging. I mean, you know, we've, and we do it all the time, quite frankly. And one of my, uh, the arguments that I've made for many years is, is that the only control we have over the duration of our life is to shorten it. And we exercise that control all the time when we adopt lifestyles that are, uh, you know, where we expose ourselves to the sun or we don't exercise or we smoke cigarettes or, or use drugs. These are the kinds of things that can uh, make us die at much younger ages than would otherwise be the case. Clearly, with these children with progeria, there are genetic forces that are influencing uh, this phenomenon, but it is not, or appears not to be, a case of accelerated aging. Now let me ask you a key question. Is there an age gene or a collection of genes which control the aging process? Well, this, to me, is one of the most fascinating lines of research in the field of aging today. Clearly, we have people who live past 100. They're called centenarians. And people who live past 110, they're called supercentenarians. There are many fewer of the latter. Um, but they do exist. And these individuals somehow can make it out for 100 years or 110 years without heart disease or cancer, while the rest of us don't live that long. And, and three-quarters of the population will die from heart disease, cancer, or stroke. So clearly, these individuals possess genes that enable them to combat the things that kill the rest of us at younger ages. And so the research that's ongoing now by a number of scientists that study these older individuals, I think, holds great potential for understanding the basic genetics of duration of life. It's not, 
it, it's important to remember that the genes that these individuals have are not, I hesitate to call them longevity genes, only because they can't exist for the purpose of making us live longer. Um, but these individuals may just be fortunate to possess these genes that somehow protect them from the things that kill the rest of us at younger ages. And that concludes our interview with Jay Olshansky. He's one of the nation's leading experts on the aging process and the genetic basis of our genes. And he's the author of a book called The Quest for Immortality. However, I should point out to you that it's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be the day after tomorrow. But it may take years for us to understand the aging process genetically as well as on the level of lifestyle as well as the ability to grow organs of the body to replace disease organs as they wear out. So a combination of therapies may eventually be involved. A, to reprogram our genes. B, to change our lifestyle. And C, eventually to replace diseased and aging organs as they wear out. So don't think this is going to happen anytime soon. However, there's nothing in the laws of biology to prevent us from extending the lifespan. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. So join us every week when we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, and once again, our special guests have been Dr. William Calvin speaking about a brief history of the mind, and Dr. Jay Olshansky, author of the book, The Quest for Immortality. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at one 800 735-0230 and be sure to dial into my website is www.mkaku.org m-k-a-k-u dot org Good day. <laughs>